Welcome to the Kaiser Human Performance Podcast. The goal of this podcast is to educate and inspire you to make the most of your journey in health and performance. Each episode will provide an in-depth discussion on a specific topic related to human performance. If you're a growth-minded individual seeking knowledge and better solutions, this podcast is for you. We're glad you're listening in and we're excited to learn alongside you. My name is Gabe Derman, and today I'm joined by Dr. Zach Kogan. Zach is a sport residency and fellowship trained physical therapist and is a board certified clinical specialist sports PT. He has dedicated his career to working as a physical therapist for elite athletes and is passionate about human movement. He has experience working with UCLA Athletics, Exos, and within Major League Soccer with DC United. He currently serves as the first team physical therapist with the New York Red Bulls. On today's episode, Zach shares some awesome insights into his work as a PT for a professional soccer club. We discuss quantitative assessments, metrics related to soccer performance, the return to play continuum, and how Zach implements Kaiser as a tool for rehabilitation. You can follow Zach on Instagram at the physio underscore and take a look at all the awesome video content he shares. Please enjoy the episode. Zach, what's up? I appreciate you taking the time to sit down with me today. How are you doing? How are we doing, Gabe? Good, good, good. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. You got it. So I understand you're an East Coast native, and after a few stops, some time in LA, some time in uh, DC, you're in New York. How have things been for you since transitioning into a new uh, role with Red Bull? So far, so good. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's really nice coming back home. Uh, technically in Jersey right now, but you know, originally born and raised in New York, so close enough. Um, and it's just nice to be back near friends and family, and to you know, just be back in in this general vicinity. Uh, DC wasn't too far away, but it's definitely a lot closer here. All right, hopefully you're enjoying some of that good New York food too, huh? <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> Good. So tell me, how did you get involved with the soccer population as a PT? Yeah, so, you know, just throughout my career, um, I've just been in different settings, different environments where I've had the opportunity to work with athletes and athletes of all populations, all different sports, all age ranges. And, you know, early in my career, I was seeing more of a mixed bag of these athletes. Um, and as my career went on, it got to be a little more specific, um, more in the elite sector. But throughout the entire time, I've been able to work with the soccer athlete, um, no matter what level it was. And, um, you know, especially during my time at Exos, I had the opportunity to work with a few professional and collegiate soccer players, especially when I was at UCLA. Uh, I got the opportunity to work with some soccer players as well. And, um, you know, while I was at Exos in San Diego, this opportunity kind of fell in my lap. Uh, to originally join DC United and, um, you know, eventually moved across the country to do that. So uh, had experience with the athlete, but understanding, you know, the demands of the sport and, and obviously having a learning curve. I knew there was a lot for me to learn uh, once I stepped through that door, just because I didn't necessarily play soccer growing up. So it was definitely um, a bit of a culture shock at first. 
Right. I imagine it's got to be pretty cool now to be at the level that you're at, this elite level of soccer athlete, but also having the experience like working our way down from college and high school and and um, even grade school in those younger populations of a soccer athlete. I think you just have an appreciation for the entirety of that continuum. Yeah, certainly. Uh, and it's really cool, especially in an organization, you know, think about uh, you know, a soccer organization has multiple levels, especially at Red Bull. Uh, and how things are connected between the academy, the second team, or MLS Next, MLS Next Pro, and in the first team, you know there is a continuum of development of young athletes uh, as they move through their lifespan and um, you know develop their training age, and it's uh, it's a cool thing to be a part of and see how that thing uh, typically unfolds, uh, and especially being able to work with the younger athletes early in my career and see, um, you know where they can potentially lead up to is, is kind of cool and gratifying. No doubt. Excellent. So diving into some of your work and now perhaps a really good lead into our conversation today would be to give us the listener, uh, just a general understanding or outlook on just how you see human movement. Um, yeah. So, I mean, human movement is how we move through space, right? So we're, <laughs> Right, it's physics, right? We're physical beings. We walk forward, backwards, side to side uh, against the forces of gravity. So three planes of motion and we have to control all three planes at all times. Pretty simple. 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 Oh, simple. I like it. Yeah. Um, so, you know, when considering all these things, uh, obviously there's a lot more to that and there's a lot more depth within all of that, right? The physics of it, uh, the planes of motion, things like that. But um, something I'd be curious to know and kind of dive into this idea of just like assessments. Okay. So you're saying there's a PT with a soccer population and obviously assessments and assessing human movement is part of, you know, your everyday job. So, um, are you running all of your athletes that you're seeing, um, through the same assessments or are assessments specific to the individual based on some sort of previous information that you've gathered? Yeah, so, and then you're getting more into, you know, the idea of what a screen is versus a, a true assessment and, you know, understanding that screens are more general in nature and, you know, you can use those over a wide variety of athletes in a subpopulation. Uh, but then as a clinician and practitioner, getting a little more specific with, with our true assessments and taking, you know, ideas such as past medical history, um, any types of uh, bumps, bruises, or nicks that they may have at that current time. Uh, things that they may have been dealing with chronically and looking a little more deeper and diving deeper into those types of things. Um, so, you know, there are certainly general assessment tools that we want to look at and, and put athletes into different buckets, uh, but also understanding uh, unique characteristics to that specific athlete in front of you and then maybe diving a little deeper into what could be going on and, and why that's going on. And, um, you know, that's a whole different discussion for a different day. <laughs> Right. So uh, let me rewind for a second there, because uh, you provided a good distinction between screening and assessment. Let's just go back to that for a second. So to you, a screen is what? And then comparing that to assessment, that is what for you? Yeah. So a screen, um, I like to say, is a, uh, a tool that we use to identify a potential body region or area uh, that we could dive a little deeper on. Um, 
you know, for instance, we would do screenings as, you know, pre during preseason physicals or entry screens uh, to identify any potential yellow or red flags that we need to, you know, get somebody to go and see a physician for or um, need to do just a deeper local joint assessment, tissue assessment uh, to see what could be driving some of the dysfunction. Um, and then, you know, it, and it really depends on what types of screening tools you would like to use. There are many, many out there. Uh, but it's more general in nature uh, that can give you an idea of what's going on, but not actually give you the most information, but more right. of a, hey, we should look a little deeper on this. Right. And that's where you're kind of more of your assessments is how you use it uh, kind of come into play. Absolutely. Hey, we've, we've flagged this one area. Let's dive a little bit deeper with maybe some more specific assessments. Absolutely. Okay, great. Thanks for uh, clarifying yeah. that. Um, appreciate yeah. that. So. Right. When considering, let's say we, okay, we, we've done our screening uh, and now um, considering some of the assessments, right? What are some of the assessments or can you provide us some insight on maybe which quantitative assessments that like you find value in? Like, what do you find yourself using a lot with the population that you're working with? Yeah. So it's, it's really going back to the basics uh, and the foundations of how we move, right? So we want to identify right, mobility, control and strength, right? So mobility, joint mobility, tissue length. Uh, we want to identify neuromuscular control patterns, how this athlete moves. Uh, can they move well against gravity? Uh, and then also looking at strength and power, uh, reactive strength, things of that nature uh, to identify those types of deficits side to side. Um, so quantitatively, you know, going back to basics with goniometry, uh, you know, as a mm -hmm. clinician, physical therapist, practitioner, you know, using goniometers or inclinometers to identify joint angles, comparing side to side differences, um, but also understanding that sometimes side to side differences are normal, especially in a soccer population where if you're a left-footed player, if you're a left-footed player, you like to kick with your left foot a lot. If you're a right-footed player, you like to kick with your right foot a lot. So one leg is really good on the ground, while the other leg may not have the best control on the ground because that's typically your kicking leg. So understanding that these, these, asymmetries could be normal. It's not always abnormal to have these, especially for an asymmetrical sport like soccer, baseball, volleyball, things like that. Um, but also moving into more of the strength realm of quantitative assessments, using some of the equipment that we may use. Um, you know, I used it at Exos, I used it at DC, I've used it, I'm using it now at Red Bulls, is you know, our Vald suite. So I'm using Nordboard, Forceframe, uh, for stacks, and for those of you who aren't familiar, Nordboard is a, a hamstring assessment tool to assess hamstring strength and function. Um, force frame, there are a multitude of different tests. You can test um, hip abductors, adductors, hip flexors. Um, you can test soleus. Uh, you can test so many different things uh, with the force frame and then also force decks uh, being able to do different isometric strength testing, overcoming isometrics, yielding isometrics, uh, your, your plyometrics as well. Um, reactive strength. So lots of different things we can quantify. It really just depends on, you know, what's your intent behind the assessment and how you're going to utilize that data to drive uh, what your, you know, your ultimate goal is, whether it's injury risk reduction, whether it's, you know, looking to improve performance or strength in the off season, it, it really depends. Right. Absolutely. It'll depend on the person. And but in your previous experiences, uh, everything together where you've had access to these types of assessments um, and ability to uh, test athletes, what kind of frequency are you looking at? Uh, and what, or, or how do you determine what kind of frequency you want to be testing your athletes at or assessing your athletes at? 
Yeah, so it's it really ranges because it depends. It always depends the best answer everybody yeah. gets, right? So it depends. Right, right. Is this athlete in a, in a rehab continuum? You know, are they mm-hmm. in a return to play continuum where um, we're looking to track, you know, if they have pain or discomfort with their, you know, their strength, is their strength continuing to come up? Are we, is this somebody that we're looking to get back on a certain timeline? Is this somebody that we're tracking who's a healthy athlete? that we're using as a monitoring assessment to see if they're maintaining strength, losing strength, gaining strength within season. Is this the end of the season? Um, so it really depends in those, you know, those testing frequencies really do range. So it really depends on what um, your ultimate goal is with that specific athlete. But I guess the main point is that um, it can be any type of frequency as long as you can justify it. Right. Earlier, you mentioned just a second ago here, just the right and left leg differences and asymmetries a little bit. So I have a question. It's uh, for you. I'm curious to know your answer here. How do you find the line between what is an injury risk and what is good for performance or what is normal for performance when, when considering asymmetries? I mean, let's take a soccer population. Let's go right and left leg. Mm-hmm. Interesting question. Um, <laughs> And it's, it's a good one because, right, so there's, there's literature and research out there to talk about, you know, let's, let's take an ACL reconstruction, uh, for example, an athlete going through that return to play phase and continuum, right? We know that, okay, some of the literature will point at nothing more than a 10% strength deficit to, to progress and to, you know, return to play, whether or not that's, you know, right or wrong. That's, that's again, a different discussion to, we can have a really nice conversation about that. Um, you know, we know that there's also specific to the soccer population, there's literature out there to talk about adductor strength and that the kicking leg of the adductor, right, should be anywhere from two to two and a half times more strength than the non-kicking dominant leg. Um, there's literature out there to talk about power in our plant leg compared to our kicking leg. That if you imagine an athlete going to kick or going to shoot a ball, two to two and a half times body weight going into the ground on the plant leg as you're kicking the ball. So you can imagine if you're a right-footed player, your plant leg is working pretty hard consistently. I mean, you know, if you can count how many times someone kicks in a game, sometimes it may not be much, but the amount of force that's going through the ground is pretty substantial. So you would have to assume that there are these imbalances and asymmetries. And I guess you know, we don't know everything as a performance and medical community, but taking the information that we do know and understanding what's out there from our normal populations or healthy athlete populations and being able to, you know, identify who falls out of those ranges, potentially flagging those types of athletes. So it's, it's a challenging one, but it's also, you know, putting, putting your heads together with your colleagues too, um, and talking about, you know, what we all think and, and, identify as a potential flag or risk factor, um, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, in kind of, let's go back to uh, force frame, I think you mentioned was for adductors, sure. adductors, abductor. Okay. So for you, you're looking at this and you're saying, Hey, let's find out a standard. We're going to do our serial testing for these individuals over however, you know, long period of time. However, you know, we're seeing here that we're having this you know, deficit that it goes beyond, well beyond maybe four times, you know, you know, well beyond 10% or this uh, kicking leg is, you know, four times as strong uh, with this adductor mm-hmm. versus that is that so that's for you. Hey, we're flagging that. I'm just trying to get an understanding of a, of a practical sense. Like, hey, we're not yeah. going to panic here, but this is something to sure. look at potentially. 
Yeah, that's a pretty big step off. And those are types of things that we, you know, especially we like to, to find, or we, as practitioners, we would like to find in the preseason, those types of things. So we can get somebody on adductor strength program, you know, get them doing Copenhagen's or something along those lines to increase robustness, strength of the adductor tissue on that, that non-dominant or whichever leg was in that big of an asymmetry. Uh, but yeah, it's a good question. And yeah, it's, um, usually those drastic ones or those flip-flopped ones that kind of make the most sense um, that make you scratch your head and be like, hmm, it doesn't really seem right. Right. And with all of your quantitative assessments from a preseason standpoint, you're just collecting and maybe nothing's happening. Thankfully, no injuries, things like that. But if something were to occur, it's like, hey, let's go back and look at, you know, mm -hmm. some of the testing that we've done and, and maybe see, hey, oh yeah, you know what? We might have missed this or, you know, this, we didn't think this was an issue, but turned out being one. Yep. And, you know, it goes even deeper than that, especially from a preseason data collection standpoint is, you know, you, you have a baseline eventually. And, you know, if somebody gets hurt, you have their baseline number of what their strength value is. Let's say with, you know, Vald and force frame, we're using it in Newton's uh, mm -hmm. and we know where they're at, but also you ask the question, okay, is that even strong enough? So once we get them to their baseline, do we want them to be over their baseline? And obviously that's always our goal is to make somebody as strong as possible. Um, but also keeping that in mind of you know, how we can use the, the earlier numbers we have. And, and when we're talking about athletic development and strength development too. Mm -hmm. I'm going to ask you if you can to elaborate a little bit on what that looks like being strong enough. <laughs> uh in in terms of uh like during our assessments like how strong yeah, we want yeah. them to be right it's a good question it's you know again looking at the baselines um identifying if right if someone had athlete a had a baseline of let's say you know on their right adductor they had 400 newtons of force that they could put in and they got hurt you know, mm -hmm. we know that that potentially, I mean, there could be other factors to that, uh, that, you know, outside of strength. Uh, but if we're talking about just strength of the adductor, getting over that, I mean, it's, it's difficult to identify like where we want them to be there. Now you can have a discussion of, can you create an equation that looks at the moment arm of the adductor, you know, in relation to the length of their femur? and the body weight of the, the individual and you can standardize for an elite soccer player yeah. how strong you want their adductor to be to move you know to strike a ball and how well they can control the impulse force of the ball at their foot you know there are obviously and these questions are you know, i've never seen anything like that but you know these are these are interesting discussions that i think would be nice to have as practitioners as a community um but you know we don't have uh normative values of how strong someone needs to be um, in their adductor, but we have an idea of, you know, in general ranges, it's a short lever position. You should be able to produce a great amount of force, meaning, you know, I would be concerned if someone had, obviously, depending on how much you weigh, anything under 300 Newtons is pretty low, uh, mm -hmm. for a short lever groin squeeze. So, I mean, it's, it's really across the board. It depends on how old you are, uh, yeah. you know, your maturity level, it, you know, there are a lot of different factors that can weigh into how strong someone really is, but you know, cool, good question. And definitely a cool discussion yeah. to have. Yeah. It's an interesting one.
Yeah, no, no doubt. I, I really actually appreciate the depth of like your thought process in that and sharing that. And I know there's no real great answer out there uh, yet, but I, I do hopefully this will be able to spark some of that. And for some people that are listening in, at least spark in, uh, uh, some interest and some thoughts about really what we want to be looking at. And like you mentioned, short and long lever, are you testing in a short lever and long lever position? Yeah. Uh, important to, to look at that. Obviously, you know, one is easier than the other. One puts a lot of more, you know, puts different types of stresses on that tissue. Uh, also testing it in a standing position as well, right? So there are ways mm -hmm. that you can use either the force frame or you can use the, um, we use a dynamo, which is a handheld dynamometer that you can have yeah. with a link. Uh, to a squat rack or the bottom of the table or something that you can um, look at in a closed chain position, obviously, you know, which has different factors equating into adductor strength. Then the plant leg comes into play and how, how well do you stabilize through your plant leg into the ground and then, you know, subsequently produce, able to produce force with your kicking leg. So there, you can definitely get um, the creative with how you want to test, but short and long lever, uh, would highly recommend. Yeah. I like how you're kind of testing along this entire, it sounds like it's testing along this or assessing along this entire spectrum of, uh, Hey, this is like on the table constrained, like very constrained environment. And now we're getting into maybe some other positions that are, you know, more, maybe more quote specific to soccer or relevant to maybe soccer. And just like all those provide opportunities to demonstrate or display and exhibit different types of strength, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's not even just the idea of short or long lever, but also the joint angles that you're at too. Yeah. Right? So the adductors, different fibers will contract more or less with more hip flexion that you're in versus more hip extension that you're in. Um, so, you know, it went from a short lever position, you know, we're testing whether it's at 30, 40, 50, 60 degrees of hip flexion, you know, it obviously will change, could change um, the strength numbers you get. And also if somebody has coming back from an injury, it could change whether or not you can reproduce or provocate their pain. Um, you know, sometimes someone will have no pain in long lever at zero, but someone will have discomfort at 40 or 50 degrees of hip flexion when they squeeze. So it really depends. Okay. So now for you, if you're able to identify that and thank you for letting me just continue to go on this. Yeah. Uh, no, it, 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 so now if you're able to identify, Hey, at this 45 degrees, your priority then becomes tell me what your priorities become actually uh you take them into the weight room now is this something that you're working on manually is this something you're like hey we're we're experiencing now not just like discover we're experiencing some pain here what's the next step for you is that hey let's get them to an angle that is similar to that or what they can tolerate and build out from there how do you approach that yeah so now we're getting into the idea like just principled principles of rehabilitation uh, and tissue healing timelines and things of that nature. And, you know, always circling back to what's the severity or grade of the injury, right? What's the amount of tissue that's involved? Uh, if they did, you know, let's say the athlete has a, you know, an adductor strain um, of adductor longus, you know, it, it's, it really depends on what the severity of that is, you know, how long we need to give um, in time to start loading that tissue in an appropriate and safe way. Um, you know, so starting in a more controlled, constrained environment on the table, and then eventually, you know, transitioning into the weight room, or even getting into the weight room early, uh, but starting to uh, do things that are are a little safer at first, such as starting with isometrics as we start to right. reload that tissue, uh, and we're targeting if that's the only joint angle that they have discomfort at, 
we're targeting that to try to reload that tissue, remodel the collagen, get to um, develop strength and resiliency within that range. So eventually as we retest, let's say we're doing a groin squeeze at 45 degrees of hip flexion, short lever, they have pain in seven to 10 days. The next time we test them, you know, their pain goes down from a five out of 10 to a two out of 10 at the same joint range. And then seven days later, they have zero out of 10 pain. You know, we're objectively tracking that over time and seeing their progress change. And if they felt the two out of 10 pain at 250 Newtons, but now they're reaching 350 Newtons and they feel zero out of 10 pain, you know, you know that tissues are responding well. And, you know, it may be time to start doing different types of exercises, loading the tissue differently, starting to move heavier loads through concentric and eccentric patterns, you know, things of that nature. Um, so it's, uh, you know, that that's kind of what, you know, from a soft tissue rehabilitation standpoint, kind of thinking through that lens and uh, through those buckets. Right. Thank you for that. It's awesome. I mean, some great stuff right there to start off. And um, you mentioned just a second ago, again, this return to play continuum. So I'm going to ask you to speak on that a little bit. How do you see and segment the return to play continuum? Yeah. So athlete gets hurt. Uh, something's going on. Obviously it depends on what the injury is, but you know, whether it's surgical, non-surgical, uh, somebody needs to go from a point A to point B, almost like a, like a reverse engineering type of thing, right? So who is this athlete? What's their position? Right? What are their demands on the field? Uh, what do they need to do from a power strength development standpoint? What do they need to do uh, from a performance standpoint that makes them good at what they do? And mm -hmm. then working backwards in time from, you know, whatever point in time is, is discussed upon with the medical team, with the physicians, with uh, the coaching staff and everybody coming to a consensus on this is an appropriate, you know, initial timetable. Um, I'm saying initial because, you know, things fluctuate and are fluid and things change in rehab continuums, but um, finding an endpoint and, and reverse engineering from there uh, and, and progressing the athlete uh, when, you know, objectively we're monitoring and seeing progress and seeing benchmarks and criterion and we're checking boxes along the way from phase to phase and, you know, from a, a table-based phase to a gym-based phase to a field-based phase or an integrated phase between the gym and the field and then eventually, you know, getting into more positional work and, and back into partial team trainings and full team trainings and, and moving on that sliding scale and, and adapting as you need to and speeding up or slowing down. Uh, you know, when we feel is necessary. And obviously um, this is a, it's a joint effort rather than just a, an individual practitioner effort when um, an athlete's moving from that point A to point B. Yeah, no question. Um, can you speak on that a little bit of what that kind of collaboration like has been either with your experiences now or previous experiences, helping that athlete back in with the strength conditioning personnel and then eventually back into sport with the sport coaches? Yeah. And, you know, I've been, I've been fortunate enough in my career between Exos, uh, DC United and up until now, obviously until from UCLA back in my fellowship, um, you know, having the, the different disciplines, multiple disciplines under one roof and, and working together. Uh, I've been lucky enough to be able to work with different practitioners and different professionals in different phases and transitioning into different phases and, uh, you know, getting ideas from one another. And, uh, and it's really about the communication. And, you know, uh, if somebody's in an early phase, understanding that they certainly can be working with a strength conditioning coach on conditioning, 
that's appropriate for them. You know, if they have a lower body injury that they can't really tolerate a lower extremity conditioning activity, right? Utilizing upper body conditioning, right? Doing an upper body hip circuit or doing um, something that can, can stimulate their cardiovascular system. Now, I'm just giving ideas of how uh, each professional is integrated throughout the different processes and specifically uh, performance and strength conditioning coaches. Um, and, you know, really just being on the same page of what the boxes we have to check are to get to the next phase and, and what the, the goals are for that phase and uh, what each person is working on. Um, so it's uh, it's certainly a team effort, and it's it's a lot more of an in-depth question that we can continue to speak on to, and there are papers written about this kind of stuff. So it's it's a really cool topic and something cool to be a part of. Right. Well, we see the term high-performance model, right? Every sport now, every sport organization wants to adopt a high-performance model. And just got back from a conference last week ago, the you know, Los Angeles Clippers were there, Maggie Bryant. Uh, who's over there. She did a terrific job just talking about her stages of return to play and mirrored a lot of the same things that you had just said, right? These early stage conditioning, okay, what's appropriate? What can we tolerate? So it's nice to hear that. But really the, the main theme that always finds its way to the top and the word that is always used is communication. And you said it yourself. Uh, it, it kind of starts and ends with communicating at a high level. And that's everybody that's involved. Yeah. And it's it's communicating, especially with with a lot of people in the room who are important to the process. So everybody's hearing the same messages. We're all here. We're all communicating the same language. And thus, we're all able to help the athlete with the same objective and goal and narrative in mind. Uh, and I think it's, I mean, it, it goes without being said. And I can certainly say, you know, early in my career, I thought I knew what communication was. Uh, but as I move forward through my career and have just had different experiences and met different people, I can definitely, I have a different view of what communication is versus now versus what I did back then. Um, so it, it is certainly important. Is that more of a general statement or is like, there are some things that you really like concrete things you're thinking about or like, no, this is actually, it's more of a, gen it's more, yeah. more of a general statement, more of right. a general statement to really just understand the intricacies and the the important points to continue to touch on uh, mm -hmm. when communicating through these processes and not letting things slip through the cracks. Right. Absolutely. And I think I mean, we had Scott Morrison on a few weeks ago talking about tactical populations and what that was like. One of the things he had mentioned was also allowing the athlete to be a part of that process. We talked so much in high performance about uh, the coach, the sport coaches, the ATs, everybody being on the same page. And sometimes it feels like people forget about the actual athlete. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so um, I'd like to go back to that kind of collection of quantitative data here for a second and maybe bring in some other pieces, um, things such as uh, monitoring, right? Training loads, maybe loads on the field, on the pitch field, uh, whichever term you'd like to use there. What tools mm -hmm. do you lean into for meaningful data that helps the organization make data-informed decisions that are on top of those kind of assessments that we already talked about? Yeah, and I mean, this boils, this comes down to, you know, we're using the things that we were talking about, which are, you know, more in the weight room, um, mm -hmm. you know, our objective monitoring, strength and power deficits, things of that nature, but on the field, I mean, there are multiple things that you can use, um, and we're talking about internal and external load metrics, right? So the difference between internal and external load, we're thinking about right, stress and strain on the body internally. And, and specifically, we're talking about heart rate monitoring. 
and heart rate mm-hmm. zones and, and how our, our athletes are responding with heart rate variability and such of that nature. Um, and also external load monitoring uh, from whether it's a GPS system or an LPS system. Um, I've, I've had the privilege of utilizing both and really understanding um, how to utilize these external load metrics to track our return to play across season and to periodize athletes and, and make sure that they're, you know, hitting numbers and hitting different uh, loads and stresses on the body that they need to, to continue adaptations to take place and to you know, hopefully advance their, their robustness and resiliency, especially as the season goes on, because seasons can be long. Um, you know, there are other things such as 1080 sprint, uh, there are timing gates that we can use, right? So there are different things on the field, uh, that you can certainly track, um, athletes progress, but also track performance metrics too, um, in the healthy population. Yeah. I think obviously it's, you know, I, I've spent a long time as a strength conditioning coach and early on in my years, I would say it this way. I didn't fully appreciate the fact that these were athletes that were there to play their sport. And not athletes that were there to see me and train in the weight room. Uh. <laughs> yeah, and it's yeah, it's it's to play the sport and with those tracking, um, whichever modality is used, being as specific as possible to that athlete in their position. Right? What does a you know a center back need to do that's different from a striker or a ten? Um, or someone more, you know, at a sixth position. So in the midfield, more in the defensive side, uh, what does a winger have to do differently than a keeper? Right. So, you know, there are different speeds they travel at different distances. They travel different times, you know, the amount of times they change direction at a, a higher or lower magnitude and being able to specify to that athlete, the, you know, to the best of our ability is you know, hopefully sets us up for a success, um, with the athletes moving forward in rehab or. Um, on the field of performance throughout the week. Yeah. I mean, I like you're, you're like, Hey, let's, um, reduce this down. Let's get more granular with it. Like, what does this actually look like from this position? And, uh, that's the only reason I mentioned, you know, my previous experience there is I looked at it more globally. Like, Hey, I work with baseball, rotational power is important. Hey, coach says running from, you know, making rounds at third base is really important. We gotta be really good at that. It's like, hang on, let's stop for a second. Like who needs to be really good at that? who is good at that, who isn't. And then also like, what does that actually look like? Okay, cool. We're talking about curve linear. Like what sort of standards do we have? Like creating operational definitions, which is kind of sounded like you were talking to, or they're at least alluding to is really helps sets you up for success moving forward. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And that's, <laughs> uh, you know, like I said, in that, in that continuum, going back to the original question of point A to point B and reverse mm-hmm. engineering return to play is a really understanding what that athlete needs to work towards uh, at that end point and then mm-hmm. you know, identifying, okay, this is where they're at. Is that good enough? I don't know. Um, but we know that this is typically where they're at and we can, you know, have good discussions about where we want them to get at the end. Yeah. And the nice part about the you know, having a common operating definition is that then it goes back to that piece of communication between disciplines, like we just talked about, like, okay, mm-hmm. cool. We're all on the same page about what this actually looks like and what this actually is. Now we can all work towards that, right? Now we can all reverse engineer in the right manner and the right way together to get to where we need this athlete to get to. So, uh, you know, appreciate that. And it's nice to hear uh, from you. So if you're, if you're willing to right here, I would love to kind of roll up our sleeves in a sense um, and discuss maybe some hypothetical situations. I have 
two here. I'm just curious to know how you'd approach this. Very general. Um, let's say athletes dealing with two different types of injury, obviously a soccer athlete, um, soccer professional, 24 male, no previous pathologies, no significant injuries. Previously as a striker, uh, blows out his right hamstring chasing down a ball, right? So he goes down, he can get up. You're at, you know, you're at the match limps off the field, but it doesn't appear that this is really minor. It's not like really a day to day. How do you approach these early stages of the continuum up until performance, right? You see that right away. And now your head starts thinking, okay, what's this process going to look like? Hamstring. What, what kind of, where do you start? Yeah. I mean, it all starts on the field. Uh, you know, primary responders, right? Typically our athletic trainers on staff and, um, you know, in, in any sport sporting setting for soccer, you know, athletic trainer run on, assess the injury acutely and moving forward into our diagnostics and determining the severity of the injury, uh, the location in the hamstring tissue, the size of it, um, you know, what tissues involved? Is this you know, uh, more of a myofascial injury? Is this more in the, the central tendon? Is this more of musculotendinous junction injury? Uh, so identifying the spot on the hamstring, uh, proximal or distal, mm -hmm. And then when you have all of the, the pieces of information you need to know and identify, you know, beginning to then, you know, progress the athlete forward through a rehab continuum, especially in that acute phase, um, you know, through our subacute phase, getting eventually back, you know, into the, the weight room, moving through space in the weight room, moving in the gym, moving on the field, and then eventually, um, you know, into soccer specific activities, position specific activities and then back into team training. So very 10,000 foot view of it um, from, you know, beginning to end, but then, you know, getting a little more uh, under a microscope, loading tissue when it's appropriate really boils down to understanding tissue healing timelines, right? So we're dealing with a soft tissue injury and we want to understand how that tissue is gonna heal, how the collagen is gonna attack down and scar down and eventually mature over time and what those time frames look like and those windows of time. Um, and our loading principles, right? Starting with a, right, an isometric into a slower concentric uh, and then eventually moving into eccentrics and you know back into as they're moving forward into other types of athletic movements with plyometric and ballistics. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, you can, we can spend the entire episode talking about different points of the hamstring um, rehabilitation from beginning to end, but trying to best summarize it uh, for you and the listeners. So I don't get too lost. Uh, okay. in my words, because I can, I can tend to go down rabbit holes and sure. um, get too stuck in the beginning phases or too stuck in the middle phases. Um, but just know that these are, these are being tracked over time when it's appropriate to strength test them up to pain thresholds. We're looking at, like we said about the adductor, right? We're looking at isometric strength of the hamstring. We're looking at how many newtons of force or how much force they're putting into it at that point in time where they light up their pain, tracking that over time, seeing as that gets better. Um, you know, so we're tracking strength. Uh, we're trying, and then also, you know, come back to the acute phase. Uh, you know, we're working on other areas of the body that you know potentially need work, right? So, how is their T spine moving? Right? How is their hip rotation? How is their ankle dorsiflexion or their foot function? Um, you know, things that we can work on. Maybe we can't load their hamstrings early, but we can work on global movement in general to potentially optimize how well their hamstrings can respond from a neuromuscular standpoint um, and feed into that tissue. So 
um, yeah, I, I really like went all over the board, but I, um, any specific questions you have on that? Yeah. Throw it back at me. I will. I have one, uh, but before I get to it, it's just, it's going back to what you were saying here with, are there any other areas we need to work on it? In my experience in working in athletes, those ones who are injured, okay, this is all contraindicated, you know, in this acute, you know, inflammatory phase, just forget about this one area that's affected. Let's work on some other things. I actually found that to be a really great time to try to build, let's say, musculature or power or strength, like in other areas, just because you have that huge drop-off in workload from the pitch or the field. And now they can allocate a lot of that energy and resources towards developing yeah. other qualities. Absolutely. And right. When we're talking about injury risk reduction for hamstring strains, right? We know hamstring, we know muscle strength is preventative for strains, right? That's something we do know through the literature. Um, I actually just, I literally just read a paper on this. Um, you know, there, and I mean, just this, uh, a dearth and like a dense body of research to talk about, um, preventative means or risk reduction means for hamstring injuries subsequently and core strength, pelvic control, things of that nature to also help with hamstring risk reduction or improve hamstring strength to help hamstrings function uh, through space. Now, whether or not we can maintain a pelvic neutral while sprinting at max speed is another discussion and another topic. Right. Um, but the, the actual awareness of how to control their pelvis, especially in a controlled environment when they're building strength in the weight room, let's say they're in their gym-based phase and they're, they're really just in that, you know, 10 to 21 day window of a grade three, something that's a little longer of a timeline, right? They're really developing strength, but we're focusing on core strength, core control, pelvic control while we're strengthening the hamstrings too. It can help that ischial tuberosity stay in a different position. So hamstring can anchor a little differently potentially grabbing on a little stronger with more force. So, you know, these are, these are really nice discussions to have and cool points yeah. to talk about because it's talking just about global function and how, you know, the proximal tension really can impact how the distal, distal segment moves um, or vice versa. So um, yeah, it, it good times to work on those beginning things in the acute phases, table work with pelvic control, standing work with pelvic control, kneeling work with pelvic control, things that aren't going to stress the hamstring tissue. Um, but we can get a lot of bang for a buck later on. Right. So now you invited me to ask a little bit more about any certain spot. So I do have a question. Uh, you mentioned isometrics early on, right. Uh, subjecting them to, you know, when they can tolerate some early on isometric exercises, um, potentially dependent on, like you mentioned, okay, where's the location of this? What's the severity. Right. Um, but when addressing hamstrings and hamstring strains, uh, you starting mostly in like vertical positions and challenge them is this first the table. And then, you know, going into, Hey, let's get you like in a more of a vertical position to maybe perform an isometric, maybe a short lever isometric to start and then go from there at kind of, where's your starting point? Um, let's say either table or then once they get off the table, even all of the above, I mean, okay. let's, you know, where, where can we challenge the athlete and, and do an isometric that's not irritable. It doesn't, it doesn't, they don't feel pain with it. Uh, it's not provocating, um, but it's, it's challenging the hamstring in different positions. So right, to give you an idea on the table, you know, you can have them lie in supine or on their back and bring, you bring their, your hip up to 30 degrees, or you have them bend their knee a little bit and you have them just dig, gently dig yeah. their heel into the table. 
-hmm. right? Or you bring them up to the hip to 90 degrees. So it's a tabletop position and you mm -hmm. have them just push their heel down gently into your thigh at like 30 or 40% max effort, you know, something that's not provocating, but just enough to put some tension in the tissue. You have them lying in, in prone or on their stomach and you can have them do it with their hip in an extended position and they just bend their knee up and you gently have them hold you there. And you can move, play with the shin angle or the angle of the tibia to get different length on the tissue. And you'll find, obviously, that goes with our hamstring assessment. You know, these are the types of things that we're testing when we're seeing what the severity of the injury is, right? Maybe they don't have pain with their knee at 90 degrees, but maybe if we bring their knee to 30 degrees when the hamstring's more at length, that's when they get a little more provocation in the tissue. So maybe during the acute phases, we'll spend a little more time with isometrics acute. You know, so... Um, utilizing our clinical, um, you know, just our, our, our clinical thought process and reasoning behind why we're trying to do things, uh, especially in the acute phase. We want things to calm down. We want the tissue to calm down, but also work around that uh, and build up some resiliency and robustness. Um, right. Something else that I think is, it just popped into my head uh, mm -hmm. and the idea of um, arthrokinetic inhibition or arthrogenic inhibition. Um, more so the idea of when you have an acute injury, right? Let's say, I mean, this, this is really, arthrokinetic would be more for like a joint, like ACL tear. They have a huge joint effusion, sometimes meaning a joint swelling, their knees really mm -hmm. puffy, their quad can go to sleep. It's hard for them to turn their quad on. Mm -hmm. More so there are, there is some evidence out there to talk about arthrogenic inhibition and with soft tissue injury, muscle injuries, because of the, the effusion that's around that area that the motor cortex can downregulate tissue neuromuscularly in that area that the hamstring has a tough time firing or turning on again. So thinking about just pure activation of the muscle again in a unloaded and you know very basic way so they can feel it work, feel a burn in it, just feel tension in it. So something along those lines to get those motor pathways right from the brain down to the muscle again. So something else in that acute phase to keep in mind that really foundation of that, we want to maximize our motor unit potential within a, you know, unprovocating positions and things like that. And obviously as they become more asymptomatic working into, you know, some of those more provocated positions. Yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned one of the cues digging the heel in. I found that to be like a great cue, especially for firing that hamstring, even if it's a little bit like, Hey, early on. And you have you yeah. have your list you have your check marks like okay they got this down boom no fine hey you got this down fine let's kind of keep going what can they tolerate right and then how do they respond maybe over 24 hours and then come back and see yeah. um but the, I, I totally i agree with a lot of that and i think uh getting them back to right what's the mechanism what's the mechanism of injury kind of that reverse engineering you were talking about and then from like more of a movement standpoint like, okay, cool. What positions can we put them in now? Okay. They've demonstrated that this bent knee position is fine. Can we maybe get them doing some slow walking, uh, or some wall marches from that same bent knee position, just holding that position isometrically. Right. Like, um, yeah, absolutely. And you bring up good points because that's, you know, those are the positions that they're going to be in on the field. Let's say, you know, you're doing a wall march or a wall drill type of thing. And, you know, you're progressing towards what's what's very stressful for hamstrings on the field is sprint, right? So linear sprint, typical typical mechanism of injury for a soccer player is just a straight up linear sprint. Right. Um, so you know we're, we're working towards one of those check boxes at the end is can you sprint at max velocity? You know can you can you really open up and stride out? So 
It's, um, you know, starting with the foundations and the positions and patterns that you have to be in like a wall march early on. Can you isometrically hold that position? Can you then move and undulate throughout it? Yeah. Can you do a load and lift? So one, you know, I don't know if you're familiar with any, you know, load and lift or, you know, switches at the wall and any of your wall drill complexes you can do moving through those and then eventually getting onto the field. So you can, you know, do those and express those types of movements, but while moving through space. And it goes back to the initial question of how you view human movement. That's just how we move. Yeah, it's great to be able to tie that back in. And that's that's kind of where my that's kind of where my head is going. Is like, hey, the earlier that you can subject these people to and these individuals, athletes to the movement that they need to get to and it's comfortable for them, they can handle and tolerate it, the better. Yeah, <laughs> you know, the better. So oh awesome. That was great. <laughs> I could talk about that all day. Um so my next question for you in the intro we mentioned, and you had mentioned a few times now, you've had some early experiences at Exos. Um, it was there you're able to get your hands on some Kaiser equipment and start to really understand experience kind of the benefits of pneumatics. You have a lot of old videos that you share. And at the end of the episode, for anyone listening, I'll make sure that we share your uh, Instagram account. A lot of old videos from years and years of filming athletes. Uh, on your Instagram, can you shine a light on some of kind of why you've choose to use Kaiser for a lot of your exercise prescription? Yeah. So, I mean, the, the facilities that I worked in uh, with Exos, they had Kaiser there. So um, being that I didn't necessarily choose it, and this is not just because I'm, I'm talking to someone who's with Kaiser right now, but I probably would choose Kaiser if <laughs> the option. Um, just because the, first of all, the ease of use is they're super easy to use. Um, changing, and this is something that I mean, I didn't, like, I have to even like just sit and think about for a little bit when I started using Kaiser, I just took for granted is just pressing the yellow button to go up or down in the middle of an exercise. It was super easy instead of racking the weight, taking the pin out, putting the pin back in. Um, the weight's getting like the pin not going in all the way or the pin getting jostled loose or how many times like back in the day when just like growing up, I would, I'd put the pin in and it wouldn't latch into the right position. And like, I went to pull on it and it would get stuck and it would break the machine. Um, sometimes the, you know, the cable's getting off track and just things, just the ease of functionality and the efficiency is huge and something as a physical therapist and a practitioner especially you know it's a little different in, in the pro sports setting just because we have the time and the resources we you know i work with sometimes work with the athletes seven days a week so it's a little different but when you're in an outpatient facility like i was in exos seeing sometimes people two to three times a week so your time with them is valuable and efficiency of your sessions because sometimes you only have an hour with the patient or in some mm -hmm. settings 30 minute with a patient one-on-one -on -one. so you need to make sure you maximize the use of your time to down to the minute uh so being able to easily bump up the weight bump down the weight not re-rack it is this too light okay we can bump up the weight right away instead of racking putting the pin in and out Things add up. I mean, we're talking about seconds to minutes, but it could add up. And I think that's important from, especially those settings that I was kind of mentioning before where time is of the essence. Um, so that that's really important as well. Um, you know, there are other things with functionality of use with just moving the resistance on the fly. I mean, like drop sets. 
like just mm-hmm. you know moving, starting with a higher wave and you're just going to failure they can't go with that wave and just slowly pressing you know the the negative button and decreasing the amount of air pressure in there it's it's cool and it's nice and um it's definitely something you can't do <laughs> with a with your traditional rack and pin system i don't even know what you would call that uh, is it a rack and pin uh mass based mass based resistance <laughs> yeah sure, mass based resistance um so you know it's it's just different it's just different i i've noticed in a lot of your videos too you implement the what's that strap or a very iteration of that i think that's the strap you're yeah, using it's a variation something of like the something like it right something it's like a it so strap, yeah. right so for a lot of those like slow controlled rotational movements and I'm, I'm like anyone listening you got to go check out his page <laughs> you'll see exactly what we're talking about any of those like really slow controlled movements or even the really violent movements that you have people performing maybe onto a box or jumping off of a low box and then into another position um you know i think the smoothness and the consistent resistance i think provides yeah you the ability and and the individuals the ability to actually perform those exercises like consistently and in a safer manner is that right absolutely yeah and you know when you're talking i'm gonna i'm gonna refer back to what you said like what you call the mass-based resistance like the friction mm-hmm. on those i know that the machines are different and the, the way they're oiled up or the way they move on the pulleys like sometimes you can get a hitch where something can be different in your resistance and it's very consistent with pneumatics. Um, you're yeah. going to get the same tension throughout. Uh, and especially with your violent movements, this is something that I didn't mention before, but you know, the, the power output, the metric that's given where how, you know, how fast or how, how forceful you're moving, you can get a number that pops on the screen to give you some sort of whether or not, you know, whatever, you know, unit that's in, um, being able to <laughs> utilize that is something, okay, I want you to get over that number, whether you're not like, let's say 400 pops up on the screen. Okay, get 600, move a little harder, quicker, let's go. So something that the athlete can latch onto as well. And I think that's kind of cool and nice to see. Uh, and I know that, um, you know, those numbers have been used with multiple different, whether it's upper body or lower body. Um, I've even mm-hmm. utilized that with, uh, with some quad strain rehabs, like how hard we're at out there, like how hard can you kick uh, when attaching a cable to their ankle? And like, really like, okay, think about kicking with your laces um, as fast as you possibly can, like go and look at the number and see what they're at. Um, do they have pain with that? Do they not? Okay, they have pain with that number. Maybe we shouldn't hit that. Or their full distance go, their kicking leg has a lot more than their plant leg and things look good. I don't know. So just playing around right. ideas of how to use it, but it's something else with the pneumatics too that, that was really nice to see and, and cool to use. Right. And obviously that low inertia allows you to be able to do that, you know, both starting and then finishing with each each part of the movement. Sure. So what's some of the feedback that uh, is given to you from athletes when they use Kaiser, maybe like for the first time, like maybe they've never seen it before and they get on it. Is it sometimes, you know, people see a cable stack and like, okay, cool. It's kind of like a cable stack. Is there any sort of feedback like, oh, this feels really good or um, open-ended question? <laughs> yeah. So I think most of the feedback has been, what is this? Yeah. Uh, I've never, I didn't know you can use air for resistance mm-hmm. and then be like, oh, that's pretty cool. And, and really just kind of enjoying what the exercise is, um, you know, and, and identifying like, oh, you don't even need to rack it. Uh, and again, I'm going to go back. Like, that's really the most 
because I'm honest, constantly asking the question, is that easy meter or hard? Because we're not, you know, I don't want things to be too easy at certain points in rehab. Um, so, you know, being on the fly and being able to adjust it right away and people seeing like, oh, you can just do it in session. Um, so it was more so along those lines. Yeah, I got to say the leg press and the Biaxo row that we have, not having to walk around a weight room and find 45 pound plates, you know, and leaning, like you'll see yeah, traditional mass-based ones, they're just, they're leaning up against the machine typically, like, you yeah. know, and then they're, they're falling over. Then you got to pick up the 45, like the ease Absolutely. of having that right there is incredible. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, well, that's fantastic. Well, thank you, you know, for sharing some perspectives there. And obviously, you know, we'll mention uh, that Instagram page as well at the end of the episode here. So a couple of questions to finish up for you here. Uh, what advice would you have for a young student of kinesiology potentially or practitioner with aspirations to work in professional soccer? Um, good question. So the first thing is, is, you know, did you play soccer? I'm assuming that most people that want to work in soccer have played soccer in the past. So they have a really good idea what soccer is like, what the culture is like, the, the rules of the game, um, what the demands of each position, things of that nature. Uh, but for somebody who didn't play soccer, like myself, um, you know, really trying to get an idea or grasp on soccer as a game, what's required of each athlete, uh, the different energy system demands that are that are required for the athlete or important for the athlete to, to harness. Um, and what they need to do uh, really can kind of set you up for how to uh, develop your mind from a strength conditioning or performance-based standpoint or a rehab standpoint, whatever practitioner you're looking to, to grow into. Um, and you know, on top of that, it, it really foils down to your drive and willingness to talk to different people and reach outside of your comfort zone uh, if you're uncomfortable reaching out to people and networking. Um, and, and meeting different people, going to different conferences, uh, learning from uh, different mentors or, or people who have been in the field for the business or the industry for a long time, and getting getting yourself out there and, and getting your hands dirty and your feet wet and volunteering. Um, you know, really, just the more you can expose yourself to those environments in any way, the better. And um, you know, things will, will fall into place. Uh, but it's really you know, understanding that uh, you got to really dive and like submerge yourself in the, in the culture and, and what's happening and you have to be in it to really understand and learn about it. So yeah, it's uh, get involved some way, shape or form. Whatever it I like it. Roll, roll up the sleeves and get in the sandbox. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. really it. That's really it. And, uh, and don't be scared to do it because everybody at one point was in your shoes. Um, so, you know, it, you'd be surprised how many people are willing to to help you out and to have a conversation, uh, to, to talk for 10, 15 minutes to answer some questions. Um, even if you don't think so, you'd be surprised at how many people are willing to do so. Awesome. And Zach, I have one more question for you, but before I do, I'm just going to mention mm -hmm. it now. Instagram is at the sports physio underscore. So the sports physio underscore, make sure you give them a follow there. Um, last question for you. And again, just super appreciative of your time. Uh, what does your own exercise routine look like right now? What's your own training regimen? Uh, if I walk into the weight room there and I'm watching Zach, is he at his desk working or is he training? And if so, what does that training look like? Yeah. 
so usually my schedule, I'm an early riser, so I'll work out in the morning. Um, just gets gets me going on the right foot beginning of the day. Um, and honestly, I, I try to practice what I preach. Um, you know, I, I utilize a lot of the exercises uh, that I prescribe athletes. Uh, you know, I, I'm a firm believer in, you know, I won't prescribe or give something to an athlete that I haven't done myself because uh, I want to know what it feels like and, and do it to, to know how to instruct it, tell them what they're supposed to feel, how they should feel it. Um, so if they're not feeling it in the right place, right? So my favorite question is, what are you feeling and where are you feeling it? If they're not answering those questions how I want it to, then we have to adjust or cue or figure out a different way to, to set them up to get them to achieve it. So I'm doing the things that I prescribe people, um, but also I'm prescribing myself things that I know I need to work on. Um, so I'm always looking to, you know, improve my body. I was a wrestler growing up in high school and college. So my body is, is feeling it in some areas. So I'm always trying to, um, you know, just make myself a little stronger and better just moving forward every day. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Um, well, Zach, can't thank you enough. Thank you for joining us on the Kaiser Human Performance Podcast. This was really fun. Love discussions. Can't wait to follow up with you. And I want to wish you uh, good luck with the rest of the season. Yeah, man, I appreciate it. Thanks a lot for having me, Gabe. Uh, this was a pleasure. And um, yeah, if anybody has questions, uh, feel free to reach out. We appreciate you tuning in to this episode of the Kaiser Human Performance Podcast. To stay up to date on all things Kaiser, follow us at Kaiser Fitness on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. For more content, you can visit our Kaiser Fitness YouTube page and at our website, www.kaiser.com. Thank you and have a great day.